So today we're going to be discussing uh, the last few verses in Philippians chapter 1. If you can get your Bibles open there, we'll, we'll finish the chapter out today. These last few verses, 27 through 30, are, are actually kind of an introduction to a new section of the letter. Uh, it's a, a transition uh, section here that we're going to look at today. When we think back to where we've been already in, the, in, the, in this letter, the first verse, remember, was where Paul formally addresses the letter to the saints in Philippi from he and, and Timothy. Um, and then he wrote this kind of extended greeting where he expressed his love and appreciation for all those saints in, in Philippi. He, he did that by telling them how he was always um, joyfully remembering them in prayer because of their steadfast partnership with him in the, in the work of the gospel. They were partakers with him in the, that particular grace of God. Um, and he told them that he prayed for them, that they would abound more and more in love and knowledge so that they would be found pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Now, after that, the last few weeks we've been talking about the, the report that Paul gave them about how things were going with him. Part of the purpose of the letter is he's writing to, to tell them what's going on. All of the, this, that, that, that section about what's going on with him is kind of summarized in verse 12. You see there in, in, in Philippians uh, 1.12, Paul says that he was rejoicing that all of these things that had happened to him had really served to advance the gospel. I mean, he, he was aware that he might still be executed in Rome at this point. He's in prison and he might be executed. He knows that, but he said if that, if that were to be the case, it would be very much better for him by far to go and to be with the Lord. But he was confident that he would be released from the prison to go and visit the Philippians once again um, because that would be the most beneficial thing for all of them. And so Paul was looking forward to continuing with them for their progress and joy in the faith. Now it's with this in mind that Paul sort of sets off in a new direction here in verse 27. This is the first place where Paul tells them something that he wants them to do. 26 verses into this, into this um, chapter, about a quarter of the way through the book of Philippians already, and he hasn't told them that he wants them to do anything yet. He hasn't given them any exhortation or command, but this is where he begins to. The verses today, like I said, are kind of this introduction to the next section of the letter, which will extend in, in much greater detail into chapter 2. And so um, the first half of chapter 2 rolls off of this transition where he begins in our verses today. We'll get into chapter 2 in the weeks ahead. But we're going to just restrict ourselves to these last few verses in chapter 1 today. So hopefully you have your Bible open after a long, lengthy summary. And read the verses along with me here. It's in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27 through 30, the end of the chapter. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Lord, I thank you again this morning for your word, what you give us in it. and pray that we would hear Paul's exhortation as coming from you, that this is written to us, uh, Christians in every age, that, that we would live a life that's worthy of the gospel. 
that we, that we say we believe. I pray that you would help us in that, to, to know what that would look like in our lives, that we would, we would be kind of striving more diligently in these things to grow up in Christ, to become more mature, to learn how to stand firm in the faith and how to strive side by side with one another in the work that you've given us to do. I pray you'd give us these things um, today. Meet with us, I pray, by the Spirit. Help us, help us to not only hear the Word, but to take it in and, and want to be conformed to what we see in it. I pray for your help in all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Often when you read through Paul's letters, we're going to see things in, in many of his letters where he, he's making a point. He's getting to a point where he's going to like, give an exhortation, tell the people something to do. But some of the, some of the way he does that often is he, he kind of builds a case. He, he provides all of this supporting argumentation to build up to the exhortation, to build up to something that he wants us to think or believe or do. You know, Paul often writes that way, but here in, in this, this section of Philippians, he doesn't really do that at all. He starts right at the pinnacle. He starts at, at the end point. He doesn't tell us a bunch of reasons why. In, in a sense, he kind of has by using his life as an example. But he, it hasn't been a doctrinal argument. It's, it's not, he's build, he hasn't been building a case like he often does. He starts here at, the, at what I see as the, the pinnacle of, Christ, of, of Christian maturity the top of it, right? He didn't tell these guys that, hey, you need to try to repent of your sins and, and, and try to believe the gospel better. He knew they'd already done that. For us, for Christians, that's not really what our lives are supposed to be about. Christians aren't really supposed to be constantly struggling with the, the most basic level of believing for all the rest of their lives. There's times when that's true, when we have assurance um, yeah, need, need more assurance and we seek the Lord and that, that can be true, but it's really not supposed to be our whole lives. You remember this was a specific exhortation when we were preaching through the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 5, um, verse 12. It's written there that, that though this time, by this time uh, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. You see, it's the young and the immature who are like children in the faith. They're living on the milk. They're just trying to, to, to trust the Lord and obey what he says. That these very, very most basic things. But the mature are those, it says, who are constantly practicing discernment in a way that they live to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. They're not, they're not just trying to do the very basics. They're trying to, they're trying to continue on this continuum. They're not, they're not so easily tossed around by the world or by their emotional reactions to what the world's got going on, because they're really pursuing Christ. The mature are like this. They become skilled in living like Jesus. That's really what this is about, right? And this is one of those places here with our verses today where, where Paul tells him, hey, live a life worthy of the gospel. Like, do this. Come on to the maturity. He writes it this way in Ephesians 4, um, verses 1 through 3. It says there, I therefore, Paul says, a prisoner of the Lord... 
Refer the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's not, it's not um, only coincidence that he wrote Ephesians and Philippians from that jail cell, from his imprisonment in Rome. This is where Paul's reflecting on the life of a Christian. And he's writing to these believers in these churches, incidentally, two of the best taught churches in, in that period, the, the Ephesians and the Philippians, the ones that he feels this close partnership, and he's, re, he's reflecting on his life and he's writing to them, you guys walk in a manner worthy of, 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 of Christ. Live up to what we've been given. That this is how we need to go. The calling we have received, he says, is to be conformed to Jesus Christ in humility, to be conformed in gentleness and peace or in patience. For the goal of peace with one another, the goal of unity, we should bear with one another in, our, in, in love to perfect that unity in the Holy Spirit, he says. We're, we'll never do that if what my Christian life is where I'm just struggling to maintain the most basic faith in Christ. I'm just struggling to, to not lose heart, to not give in to unbelief. The Christian life, I'm never going to really make any progress if, if I'm just constantly repenting of the same dead works, right? I'm not really going on to maturity. We have to grow up into maturity and walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. In Colossians 1.10, he says that, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I mean, mature believers are those who are, are seeking to be fully pleasing to God, concerned with bearing fruit in every good work. I mean, that's, that's far beyond just the basic uh, rejection of the temptations of the world, right? That it's, it's different than that. It's a life that's devoted to Christ, that's, that, that, that is to the exclusion of everything else. You hear that in Paul's words there to the Philippians that we've talked about the last couple of weeks? For to me is Christ. To the exclusion of everything else. This is Christian maturity. He's telling them about his life and his attitude and he wants them to have the same. Right? He said the same thing to the, the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he says, We exhort each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Mature believers set their hearts on the things above, on the things of the kingdom, to live for the glory of Christ. And Paul is absolutely encouraging the Philippians to do the same thing. Do you suppose he would encourage us to do the same thing? Don't you suppose that the Holy Spirit would want these things in the Scripture for us so that we would do the same thing? Of course, right? Look at how, how Paul begins this in verse 27, Philippians 1.27. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What's the first word of that verse? At least in the ESV, it's only. I don't know what, I didn't actually look what the other translations say, but in the Greek, it's only too. That Paul wrote first, only do this. Above all things, to the exclusion of everything else, be consumed with living for Christ Jesus only. Only do this. We are called, therefore, to adopt Paul's philosophy. How did Paul live? For me to live is Christ. Only, he didn't write it there, but it's there. Only that. Everything else is done. For I've been crucified with Christ, 
and I no longer live. I've got nothing else. It's only about Jesus. Only. We've got to live like that. You've got to be like that if you're going to become a mature Christian. Christ, for Paul, was his purpose and his obsession. Everything was Christ. And so we, too, have to push everything else aside for Christ. I mean, as Jesus taught us, right, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks, that the kind of love that we have for him is supposed to make the love that we have for the most important people in our lives look like hate. Hate your mother and father, your spouse, your sister, your brother, your kids, your own life. You've got to renounce everything for Jesus. Doesn't that sound like only live for Jesus? That's what Paul says here. We're supposed to be like that. Only taking everything else and putting it on the cross to follow him alone. To begin coming to maturity, we have to devote ourselves to Jesus only. There, he, he cannot be one of many things in our hearts, one of many things in our minds. Moderation in Christ is absolutely not appropriate ever. If you're a believer, he gave himself for you. He literally lost his life to save you. That's the good news of the gospel, right? So, what would your manner of life have to be to live worthy of the gospel, as he says here? That's the gospel. He gave himself for you. What's our response? Well, we give ourselves for him, right? That's the only thing that it could possibly be, is he's worthy of the sacrifice of myself. Nothing short of giving him your life makes any sense really whatsoever. He said it to the, uh, to the Romans, right? That, that we, li- we make ourselves a living sacrifice, Holy, pleasing to him. That's my whole purpose. Only. That's how it's supposed to be. Above all, first and foremost, only let the manner of your life be so singly devoted to Jesus that, that you're worthy of him having given himself for you. And that's got to be what it means. And to explain that, Paul used a very interesting term in this first verse, in verse 27. In the ESV, it's translated as, let your manner of life be worthy. That's one word in Greek. <laughs> let your manner of life be worthy. If you have a, an ESV like, 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 like this, it, there's a footnote at the bottom of the page that says this could also be translated, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. That phrase had a very particular meaning to those in Philippi. Remember when we first started, the, the, probably the first message, we talked in introduction about Philippi. That Philippi, the city, was a Roman colony. Even though it's about 800 miles away from Rome, it was like a little miniature Rome. It was a colony, a Roman settlement, and it was thoroughly Roman in politics, in attitudes, in architecture, in dress, and in, in, even in language. They, they actually spoke Latin there, um, like the Italians used to in Rome. They, they, were, they were in every way wanting to be exactly like Rome, and there was an abundance of Roman citizens there. And they were extremely proud of that. And by the way, they were exclusive. Remember when Paul went there with Silas to go preach the first time? They couldn't find a Jewish synagogue in Philippi. That's why they went to the river where they found some women gathering for prayer on Saturday morning where they met them and those were the first converts in in Philippi. There wasn't even a, a synagogue there. It was very Roman. I mean, there were synagogues in Rome, but not in Philippi because they were Romans, devotedly Roman. 
We see this clearly, I, I mentioned about Paul and Silas going there, but in Acts chapter 16, remember they got arrested after they cast the demon out of the, the slave girl that was going around and, and sort of doing uh, future-telling stuff and made the owners mad because she was making the money, and they took him to the magistrates. This is what they did in Acts 16, 20. They, they brought Paul and Silas to the magistrates of the city, the city, the city leaders, and they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice, right? The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Why? Because we're Romans and these guys don't belong here. That's why. This is one of the beatings with rods that, that Paul took right next to Silas. The people of Philippi were Romans. And they opposed Paul and Silas because they were advocating for anything other than something Roman. They wanted them stopped. So sharing the Roman pride, the magistrates jump into action. Strip them off, beat them with rods, throw them in prison. It wasn't until the next morning that they found out that Paul and Silas were actually Roman citizens too. Remember that? The Philippian jailer gets saved overnight. They go to his house and they send to the jailer, let him go. Paul goes, no, no, they need to come apologize. Remember that? We're Roman citizens. All of that's going on in Philippi. All of this is in the background as Paul's writing to these believers in Philippi. You almost have to be certain that the jailer's there that day when they're reading the, the letter from Paul. Only let the manner of your citizenship be worthy of the gospel. These guys are hearing this in that way. That's the sort of the, the idea that's about this. The, the point of all of it is that as Paul's writing to those in Philippi, most of them who had been converted in that city had grown up in that city. They had lived in that city. Many of them were probably Roman citizens. They knew what it was to be a proud Roman. Even if they weren't one, they knew the, the people around them that were. It meant to live worthy as a citizen of Rome. They saw themselves as representative of Rome, 800 miles away in Philippi. We want everything to be Roman. Their devotion was much deeper than patriotism as we kind of know it today. They saw themselves as members of the community in partnership with other people who were Romans to live as Romans for the highest good of the society. They didn't live for themselves primarily. Rather, they worked hard for the success of their community as a whole. The citizens of Rome and Philippi, they, 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 like all Roman citizens around the empire, devoted themselves to the life of the city. The Greek word for the city-state was, was polis, P-O-L-I-S, a polis. It's a, we, get, we get our words politics and metropolis. Metropolitan, all come out of that Greek word for city-state. To the Roman citizens of Philippi, the polis was, was not just the political class. It was something that, that, that kind of consumed their lives. It demanded their loyalty. It de demanded every aspect of their lives to be sort of centered around that. And the citizens gladly gave it because the reality was to be Roman was to be the best. They were proudly, devotedly, consistently Roman. And they, they really loved that. Now, it's to them, like I said, that Paul is writing this to them, and he's not demanding them be good citizens of Philippi, is he? Live your life as a worthy citizen of where? Of heaven, right? We're citizens of another kingdom. We serve a different ruler, not, not, not Caesar. They were obligated to do that in some ways too, but 
Like the best of the Roman citizens there in Philippi, the Christian is supposed to live as a citizen of heaven, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's going to return to this picture in chapter 3, verse 20, when he reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's using that picture for them because they're so, so proudly Roman. Just as you once were so proudly Roman and thoroughly, thoroughly Roman, now be thoroughly Christian. Devoted not to the emperor. The temples in that city that were, that were emperor worship temples. That was going on at that time too. Right? The emperor is a god. Don't, don't devote yourself to him. Devote yourself to, to, to Christ. Our conduct should always be worthy of the values and the customs and the culture of the kingdom we serve in heaven. We're supposed to be this for the good of the whole Christian community. James Montgomery Boyce wrote this about the, 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 the policy. He says, all of this is directly applicable to the responsibilities of Christians. When, when Paul writes that the Christians at Philippi are to conduct themselves worthily as citizens, he's not thinking of a literal city to which the readers belong. He's thinking of the church. And in, in this context, his admonition points to their mutual duties as a member of a local Christian commonwealth. It's the polis as a state. Since it's a state, so should the church be. Consequently, Christians are to work within the organization. Is the polis a people? Yes. So is the church. Consequently, we're to preserve the individual interests and respect the individual contributions in the whole. Is the polis a living community? The church is also. He says, consequently, Christians are to share a common life and contribute to each other's well-being as living members of Christ's body. This is what Paul wants to see when he comes to them. See in the verse? I might come to you, I might not, but I want to hear about this. I want to see it. This is what I want to hear about you guys, is that you're living like this. You're being good citizens of a, of a kingdom that you're away from for a time. But you're living worthy of that citizenship of heaven. That you're living as good citizens in that way. Worthy of the sacrifice of Christ. By sacrificing yourself for the good of the church, for the glory of Christ. But he didn't leave this for them as just a vague exhortation for them to figure out what exactly that means. He gave them and gives us two specific things in the next verse about what it means to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's it's not the next verse. It's the same verse. Sorry. The rest of the verse, 27. Right? He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see, there's two things that Paul wanted to hear about them. Even if he couldn't be with them, he wanted to know that this is what they were doing. Or if he went to visit them, this is what he wanted to see and confirm when he got there, to see that they were mature believers, acting in this way, that Christ was their, their one and only. Standing firm in this, in this way, he says. Whether he saw it with his own eyes or would only hear about it from afar, he wanted that to know that they were one, standing firm in one spirit. And the second thing is that they were striving side by side for the faith. And both of those they were doing without any fear. You'll see that in the next little phrase, that they were doing without any fear, of being, uh, despite being opposed in what they were doing. So what, what's, the, what's, the, what's his message here? If you're going to live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, we have to stand firm. This is the first thing. That's the command. Stand firm. It indicates that there's going to be things or people trying to knock us down, trying to take us out, right? 
To, to be told to stand firm means that there's going to be something that challenges you that's going to make it difficult to stand firm. The, the, the image here is a, a military image. It's the image of a soldier who is refusing to surrender, refusing to retreat, a few, refusing to back down. Right? He's, he's not going to abandon his post no matter what happens, no matter what the enemy throws at him. He won't retreat. He won't surrender. He's not going to walk away and quit. This is a description that we get in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, when Paul wrote to them, he said, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Act like men. What's that mean? Stand firm. Don't back down. Don't, be, don't let yourself be pushed over. To stand firm is actually the purpose of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Recognize this? Paul writes there in Ephesians 6, 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done everything else to stand firm. Stand, 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 stand firm. That's the whole purpose of the armor of God. I mean, we, we, we often see and feel the opposition of the world around us. But he says here that it's not primarily the people that we must be concerned about, right? We're really wrestling against these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The, the, this, 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 this reality of the devil who's behind the world that we see is in, in opposition to us. It's not just the world that opposes us. It's what's behind the world. It's who's behind the world that opposes us too. Therefore, we need to fasten on the belt of truth. right? Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Take up the shield of faith. Put on the helmet of salvation. And have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The armor of God. Why do we put that on? Because we're going to face opposition. And he says, after you've made all those preparations, after you've done everything else, your purpose is to stand firm. Stand firm is another way to say don't fall away. Remember, I, I, I tried to point this out a little bit when we made the transition from preaching in the book of Romans now to preaching in Philippians, that, that it occurred to me that the book of Romans is, has all of this encouragement and exhortation that we need to stand firm. Don't fall away. Don't fall away. Don't fall away. If we're going to be mature, we're going we're to not drift from the, the faith, right? We're not going to have our hearts torn away. We're not going to float around. We're not going to fall away. It's to move on to maturity. In many ways, that's the message of the whole book of Hebrews. And, and Philippians makes this interesting like, kind of follow-on to the book of Hebrews because this is Paul, the mature apostle, encouraging a church that has been partnering with him for many years in the gospel work, encouraging them to become mature. What does that look like if you don't fall away? <laughs> for to me, is live, to live as Christ. To, get, to die is gain. That's what it should look like, right? And so the connections keep, keep coming, and we see this in, in, in the overall plan that God has in presenting to us the Scriptures. As Christians, you know, we're encouraged to do these things and to not fall away and to, to make all these preparations and, and, and to put on the armor of God all for that purpose so that we can grow up in Christ and become mature. There's only one way that that's ever going to be possible. It's right there in the verse. You see it? It's to stand firm in one spirit. And in, in 
many, if not most, or all of our English translations, if you look there in verse 27, the word spirit is not capitalized. It's a lowercase s in my English standard version that indicates that the translators um, believed that Paul did not intend for us to understand that he meant the Holy Spirit. When Paul says that, it's a capital S in English translations, and so you watch for that as you read and as he talks about the Spirit. The translators um, believe that this is, because it's in the context of what he said, be a good citizen, that it's more like a spirit of camaraderie with one another, right? That patriotic spirit, the team spirit, that's how they, they see it, that, that, that we have this with other believers. And, 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 and the next phrase that we'll get to in a minute is that they would be unified in one mind, striving side by side with one another. And, and, the, and so it's sort of a, a parallelism to stand firm in the spirit is about the same as linking arms with other believers um, with the spirit of camaraderie and, and facing the world. But I think it's a bad interpretation. I think they're wrong. So you can take out your pen and permanent ink and make it a capital S. Many, many commentators, that's not just me making this up, okay? Many commentators, and I agree with them, that this is easily talking about the Holy Spirit. The first reason that that is is because Paul in the Greek used the word pneuma. When Paul uses the name or the, 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 the word pneuma, which is kind of the Greek word for um, breath, breathing, think about a pneumatic tool. Pneumatic tools are air, like an air, an air drill, right? An air... Uh, Air, air tools, they run on air. So the pneuma, though, for Paul, in every other spot in the New Testament where he writes, is always the breath of God, the Holy Spirit. It is always the Holy Spirit. That word, the only time that anybody even thinks to translate it differently is right in this verse. And it's a terrible place to do it. Pneuma always indicates the Holy Spirit for Paul. That's particularly true in the letters he wrote where he calls the Spirit the one Spirit that unifies all the believers. In Ephesians 4.4, he writes about that there's one body and one Spirit, capital S, just as you were called to one hope. In 1 Corinthians 12.13, he writes about the one Spirit, capital S, uh, wherein we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. We were all made to drink of the one Spirit. Again, capital S. The one Spirit, the one Spirit, the one Spirit. That, that's always for Paul, the Holy Spirit. It should be here too. It's not just because of the grammar and the language that you know, I wouldn't know about except for, except for somebody else told me. Um, I don't read the Greek so well, but uh, it's there. But beyond that is the reality of what we're talking about. It's not just the translation of the Greek word, okay? The one spirit who unites all believers is not some patriotic team spirit where we all just sort of muster up that we feel the brotherly love with one another. That's, that's there. It's supposed to be there. But that is not going to sustain us in the face of the onslaught of the overwhelming evil of the spiritual forces that oppose us where we just we get our strength from one another. Nonsense. <laughs> they only get that kind of strength from the Holy Spirit. Right? That is only the Holy Spirit who can do that. It's only by His power that any of us will ever be able to stand firm against all the schemes of the devil and all the spiritual forces of evil that are sent to knock us out. We cannot, we cannot muster up enough community spirit of common citizenship to stand together for a day, let alone until the end. 
that no doubt requires the indwelling empowering of the Holy Spirit to create in us the willpower to withstand all opposition. He is the one Spirit who gives us all the grace we need to endure. But we don't endure alone, do we? Because He is the one Spirit who unites us all with one another. So that's part of how we stand. Is not alone. We stand in the Spirit, but we stand together. We not only stand together, He's also the Spirit who unites us to not just stand firm, but to go on the offensive. See, that's the other, that's the second part. Stand firm and strive. Those almost sound like they shouldn't go in the same sentence. Here's what I want you to do. Stand firm and move. <laughs> right? Pick one, Paul. Pick one. Well, it's, it's the same thing, obviously. He's not talking about physically. He's talking about spiritually. We've got to be grounded in Christ indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that we can endure until the day, stand firm in the armor of God in the face of the entire onslaught, and at the same time, we're supposed to take the gospel to the lost world and go on the offensive, striving together with one another in the Spirit to go and to, to take some ground for the Lord, right? The Holy Spirit subdues our our rebellious individualism to unite us together for a purpose in Christ. This is actually another military picture that Paul was using. You ever see this about how the Roman armies, um, they, they, they had like the infantrymen, the, the foot soldiers out in the front, and they all had these body-sized shields, you know, that they carried, and, and they would get together, a group of them, link arms side by side, Right? And, and, and the guys in the front would hold the shields like this, and the guys in the back would put the shields over the top. And they were like this giant tank, human-powered tank, and they would just take ground. They, they would take everything that's coming at them in order to, to, to go on the offensive, in order to go out there and to attack. This is how they, they advanced in the battle, was this method. They were advancing and taking ground. Wasn't that what Paul said, that he was so glad he could rejoice in his current situation because the gospel was advancing. He's talking militarily here to guys who are, many of them, retired Roman soldiers. This is how you get a lot of Roman citizens in Philippi, is they retire from the military and they send them there to start a colony. They're not only proud Romans, these guys are Roman soldiers, most of them, that are citizens there. They earned their citizenship by being that guy under that shield and taking arrows and not getting killed, right? This is all that way. We're supposed to be citizen soldiers just exactly like that. Onward Christian soldiers marching on to war. That's how the song goes, I think. <laughs> Away we go. Striving how? As Lone Ranger Christians? No, linking arms side by side, going to advance in the gospel. Paul wants to see that fruit from these saints in, in Philippi as they become more mature and follow his example and, 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 and go out there with the gospel proclaiming um, that so that they were working together in that, in that whole purpose. And we have to recognize here that arguing and bickering between believers, those aren't uh, unique to our day. Right? But, but for us... You only have to spend a few minutes on social media to find all kinds of assaults and attacks that Christians are making on one another. Right? But Paul didn't have to have X or Twitter or whatever they call it today or Facebook or 
you know, whatever. Paul didn't have to have all that stuff to know that there was opposition from fellow believers. He just wrote this to us right here in the first chapter of, of Philippians, that he knew that right there in Rome where he was, that there were some that were outside there preaching out of rivalry and envy. He had these guys who were believers that were preaching Christ, but they're trying to make, make trouble for Paul while they're doing it. He knows about the opposition. That's nothing new for him. I mean, unfortunately, this has always been true, that there are some Christians who spend a great deal of their time and energy trying to point out other Christians' faults because, as Paul says it, it's their own selfish ambition that drives them to it. That's what Paul saw and knew and experienced, and, and so will we, especially if we're going to link arms with one another and try to go after somebody, try to get on the same team. That guy's not holding his shield right. Let's get rid of him. But the Roman army guys would have failed miserably if they had done that. We're supposed to be like good citizens, like good soldiers, in exactly the same way. This thing where there's bickering and arguing has actually never been true of mature believers because they focus their, on conducting themselves exactly like Paul says here in a manner worthy of the gospel. The mature believers don't act like that. They'll see the weaknesses and sins of others, but they'll set their minds on Christ and His goodness and His glory, which is magnified in the unity they'll have with each other. Unity of mind, purpose in love is that vital pursuit of the Christian life, to strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel. And that has to be our goal together because then we're united by one Holy Spirit together with each other as we stand firm and strive for the, the advance of the gospel. We really have to stop looking for faults and start looking for God's mighty grace at work in each other. I mean, if you look at me, you don't even have to look at me that hard or that long. You'll find faults. There's a lot of them, right? You'll always find faults if you spend your time looking at me. Same thing if I look at you. But if we strive together with one mind side by side and, and your focus is on the Lord, you might be actually be able to look at me and see, God's kind of doing something in that guy. Right? You could actually see God working in, in the life of your fellow believer. We should be more like Paul. Look at verse 6 right here in chapter 1. It's Paul who wrote to the Philippians that he was sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. How, how, how rarely do we see the other believers we're supposed to be side by side with in that way? God's doing something in you and you're not there yet, but he's going to complete it. I see God at work. I mean, that's, that's the attitude that Paul has and the one that he wants us to have. We should have that same confidence, not so much in one another, but in what God's doing in one another so that, so that we can strive together in the Holy Spirit to advance the gospel. And if we do that, we won't have any reason to fear any opposition. See that in verse 28? Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul's language here when he says that, that you won't be frightened in anything is um, uh, the, 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 a phrase that they used to describe a horse that got spooked. Frightened. Hor a spooked horse, something happens unexpectedly and takes the horse by surprise. They, they sort of instinctually become tense and agitated. They, they, they can kick or bolt or something. Some of us know better than others. Suddenly they'll run away without any thought of what they're doing. A, a spooked horse is actually quite dangerous to himself and anybody who's around him. That's what a Christian's like 
when we become frightened in any way by opposition. We're like a spooked horse. get agitated. Anxiety and fear. And, and, and in that place, we become a danger to ourselves and a danger to really anybody else who's around us. Because in our fear, we may just run right over the top of whoever's with us, you know. Physically or spiritually, I'm thinking more so, right? Just, just no thought but my own, my own safety. I got to run. And, and, and how, how are we going to work together if that's the case? That's what Paul says. There's very little that's more discouraging to a believer than to have other fellow believers around them be fearful. You notice that? You see somebody who's supposed to be confident and they're acting in fear? That, that can really shake you, right? When we watch a believer back down, when we watch him retreat, when we watch him fall away, that may be one of the most disturbing things to the stability of the believers who are left in the church is to watch somebody get spooked like a horse and take off. It's, it's, it's super dangerous. And, and this is, I think, especially true to, for us here, American people. In our day, Americans are wimps, man. <laughs> I mean, just utter, utter wimps. It, it, it's so bad that many people can't even operate in their lives with the knowledge that someone somewhere out there disagrees with them in any way. Right? They'll quit their jobs in order to defend themselves on Twitter all day long or something like that. Nobody can, no, nobody can take this anymore to know that there's somebody who disagrees with me. I've got to cancel them. I've got to kill them. I've got to get rid of them, whatever it is. Right? I've got to defeat them. Tragically, because we Christians operate in America, we are in danger of being influenced by that. We can react in anger and malice, just like those in the world around us when, when we face any kind of opposition. But Paul reminds us here that since we are standing firm in one spirit and we're supposed to be striving side by side with a single mind set on Christ, we have no fear of opposition. Now listen, if you're a mature Christian, you're going to live like this. You see Christ as worthy of such bold confidence. Why should I be confident? Not because of me, not because I'm strong, but because of Christ. And for me to live as Christ, and if I should happen to, the worst thing that can happen to me is they can kill the body. And then it's just entry to time with Christ. Right? That's the mature view. They can kill the body, but the soul goes to be with the Lord. That, that, it's a benefit to me. Why should I fear? Why should I fear opposition? If we're mature in Christ, we're, we're going to see this and we're going to have these two results. Notice that Paul says there's two things that happen there in, in, in the second part of verse 28. He says, first, your confidence in the Lord, your refusal to live in fear of opposition, will be a clear sign to your opponents of their destruction. Those people who are, are making themselves your opponent, who are, who, who are in conflict with you, it'll be a clear sign to them of their pending destruction. Now, that's not a call to us to be arrogant. Right? We're not supposed to be taunting those who oppose us. God's going to get you, ha, ha, ha. But the reality is, if they mock you for your faith, or worse, worse than mocking, there's worse things than mocking, and you do not waver in your faith, you don't back down, you don't retreat, you don't take off and run like a frightened, spooked horse, if you stand firm in the Holy Spirit and continue striving with the rest of the believers for the faith, then your refusal to be spooked, to be frightened, will be evidence to them that God is supernaturally at work in your life. 
Because there is no other explanation for why you would stand in the face of opposition like that. They may still choose to reject the evidence, but it is evidence. It's a sign to them. It's an omen to them that God is with this person. At least they think so. And if they're right, someday I'm going to have to give an answer for that. I said, we don't, we don't want to, God's going to get you, ha, 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 but God is going to get him, ha, ha, ha. And that's how it really is, right? They may still choose to reject, but it's, a, it's an evidence to them that God is with you when you refuse to be afraid. And that same confidence then is also another evidence, uh, uh, not just an evidence of the com- coming judgment, but it's an, a clear indication of your salvation to you. See it? That same confidence has sort of two fruits, right? For those of us who have been born again, we will see the kingdom of God so clearly that we're not frightened by what man can do to us as we mature, as we come, grow up in the faith. I mean, as Jesus told us, right? He said, don't fear man, but fear God. That's where my fear is, but it's not the kind of frightened fear like running away. It's the respect that we owe to God. But if we, have, if we have to endure opposition, if we have to endure persecution for a time, we know that it's really nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us when Christ Jesus comes. The fact that we can have such confidence is a strong evidence to us. The fact that I can stand in the face of frightening opposition without fear is an evidence to me that God is with me. It's not the only evidence, but it's an important evidence. It's a tremendous blessing, actually, for the mature believer who's concentrating on what? What does the mature believer concentrate on? On living for Christ in a manner worthy of the gospel, which means stand firm, strive with fellow believers, and if you do that, you have no reason to be afraid of opposition. And when they oppose you, and you stand firm in the face of their opposition, it will be a sign to them of their coming judgment, and it's a sign to you that God is with you, and have more confidence. It's amazing, isn't it? This is, this is, this is just simply how, how, how the Lord has made it to work for us. It's a tremendous blessing for us. When, as Paul said, to live is Christ, then we'll stand firm in one Holy Spirit. We'll strive together with one another in that single-minded purpose of advancing the gospel. We'll do it without fear. To see that in our lives is, is, is a tremendous evidence of salvation. And in that light... The mature believers will understand Paul's statement in the last two verses. With that as the background, now look at the last two verses, which may not have made a ton of sense the first time we read them. But hopefully they do now if we're becoming more mature believers. As we read in Philippians 1.29, he says, For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul says to those saints, any saints, them, then or now, who are living for Christ, who are striving to live as worthy citizens of heaven, that you will receive two graces. He has granted to you something, is that he has gifted you something. He has given you these two graces. He's granted to you two things. For the sake and the glory of Christ, the first is that he's granted to us that we should believe in him. He's granted to us, given us the grace of faith, Right? We all know that saving faith is not something that we stir up on our own. It's not something we inherently possess. He grants it to us because he loves us and he wants us to trust in him and so be saved. So he changes your heart and gives you faith, right? It's been granted to you to believe. 
for the glory of Christ. We all know that, but you might not recognize that the suffering in your life is also a grace that he has granted to you because he loves you and wants you to learn to trust him through it and to so be saved. It's granted to you to suffer. Think about the apostles in Acts chapter 5. Um, they, they all got arrested and, and, and they reacted in this way. In Acts 5.40, it says that when the Sanhedrin had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Then they left the presence of the council and they got spooked like horses and ran away. <laughs> no, no, they, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And as a result of that, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is, that, that, that the Christ is Jesus. They suffered for Christ, and it increased their ability to stand. It increased their desire to link arms side by side and to strive with one another for the gospel. I mean, that's, that was an evidence to people in Jerusalem that what if they're right? If they're right and I'm wrong, there will be a destruction day for me, right? Oh, and, and, and it's an evidence to them as they look at one another and go, this, must, this is really good. Like, you're, you're, you're fired up more than you were. you got a black eye, bloody nose, me too. Let's link arms and get back out there tomorrow. we got a temple court to go preach in. This is exactly how they reacted, right? Suffering for Christ was grace to them because it was evidence that they had been counted worthy. The, the apostles stood firm in the gospel and they continued to strive side by side with each other to advance the gospel among the unbelievers. And according to what Paul has just said here, the fact of the suffering caused by the opposition to Christ was evidence of their salvation. They knew whose side they were on. And that suffering solidified their commitment to each other and to preaching the word of God even more boldly. It gave them greater fellowship with one another. And more importantly, it caused them individually and corporately to seek fellowship with God. That one spirit that they were all united in, the Holy Spirit. They were given more there. The Holy Spirit came more, gave them more power to speak even more boldly and even more without fear. It increased their hope of heaven. And their suffering, incidentally, also drew the attention of the lost who watched them go through it and would want to know, what, what do they believe that they're so willing to suffer for? Right? That's grace too. That's, that's God has granted them some other people who now might believe because of their suffering. Have you ever seen your suffering in that way? It's been granted to me that I should suffer so that I will know Christ better and so others will see Christ in me and they might be saved because of the grace that he's granted me in my suffering. That's what Paul's talking about, isn't it? And only the mature believer even thinks that that's possible, let alone desires it, right? Oh, you can still be a believer and build with wood, hay, and straw and decide that, you know, I'm not, that, that's too advanced. I'm not going to do that. But that, Paul's not writing to you then. I don't know whether you're saved or not, to be honest with you. Because Paul doesn't really tell us much about two classes of believers. There are new believers who are immature who are going to become mature, and there are mature believers. There's not immature believers who stay immature. Paul never, never says, if you don't feel like it, just stay home. Go ahead and take the armor off and don't worry about standing. Those guys turn out to be not believers in what we read in the Scripture, right? 
Well, Paul knew this grace of suffering for the sake of Christ. He said so in verse 30. It's kind of how he wraps this up. They knew that he was engaged in the same conflict they were engaged in. In fact, they're potentially in Philippi still dealing with the same magistrates who stripped Paul and Silas and beat them with rods. They're potentially dealing with the exact same people in charge of the city. The exact same merchant who got upset that, that Paul cast the demon out of the, out of the slave girl. The exact same prisoners that the Philippian jailer held in prison the day before he got saved as he held the day after he got saved. These guys are all the same. And, and they know. They know Paul's conflict because they saw it firsthand. They had seen it with their own eyes. And they knew now that he's still engaged in that conflict with the opposition. That's why he's still imprisoned in Rome. Right? They're writing him. They sent Epaphroditus with a letter to him and stuff like that. And they know. He's there. That's why they sent support. He's still engaged in that conflict. It wasn't, it wasn't, it, but Paul, Paul says, we are engaged in the same conflict. You who are mature, take the same view with me. That we're suffering as a grace of God. To try to live worthy of the gospel. Standing firm in the faith, striving together to advance the kingdom. We're doing that together. You guys are in it with me. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul wanted them to suffer, but he wants them to know the blessing of suffering because it's for the sake of Christ. Standing firm without fear of the opposition would draw them closer to the Lord where they would be encouraged and empowered to strive more and more together for the faith. And imagine how much different it would look if Paul had been so frightened by the opposition in Philippi that he quit. I mean, just take that in for a second. We got nothing to study this morning. Right? All we got is some guy who was sort of excited about the Lord for a little while, and then stuff got difficult and he quit. I mean, how many of us would that be about? Hopefully none of us, but we've got we to consider, right? I, I wouldn't want that. It would be completely different. He would be, a, obviously, a horrible example of unbelief if he was so anxious that every time he was challenged by an opponent, he jumped up and ran away. I mean, it, it would have been proof that he no, had no conviction of the truth. And it's the same proof, proof for us. If we have no conviction in the truth, we'll be unwilling to suffer for the name. We won't link arms and strive side by side. We won't stand firm in the faith. We won't try to live a life worthy of the gospel. If, 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 if we have no conviction in it, if we're unwilling to sacrifice our personal comfort to further the gospel. Of course, that, that kind of powerless distrust is certain for you if you do not become mature in the faith. <laughs> Just straightforward as it can be, right? Opposition actually causes the mature believer to grow more confident. It'll result in us paying more attention to always conducting ourselves in a manner worthy uh, of the gospel of Christ. The question, I think, is whether you know anything of that grace at all. Do you live your life in such a manner that you've had some opponent because of Christ? Not because you're a jerk, but because, you're, because, because, because of Christ. Do you know that? Have you received that from God in some way that he's granted to you? The blessing of suffering for the name of Christ. Just as he granted to you the blessing of believing him in him in the first place. Paul doesn't say anything other than these things go hand in hand. They're part of the mature believer's life, just as it was for him. I mean, do you live your life in such a manner that, that you have these opponents in 2 Timothy 
Paul writes way at the end of his life, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Everybody who wants to walk in a manner worthy of Christ will be opposed like, Christ, like Paul was. Je- Jesus said, you know, it may not be to the same degree that Paul was opposed or Jesus was opposed, but in John 15, 18, Jesus told us this to expect that the world will hate you because it hated him before it hated you. So are you like your master? Are we like these examples we have in the scripture? Do you know anything like that hatred, such opposition for the sake of Christ? Remember that it's a blessing granted to the mature. Don't be frightened by suffering, but rejoice that you've been counted worthy of it. It's the evidence of your salvation. And as it says here, it's all from God to those who strive together in the Holy Spirit to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your, your word again this morning. I thank you for the, the example that, that, that you've left us in the word of, of, of a, a, a mature believer. I mean, we, we see that in Paul. We see these fantastic things that he says, but they're backed up by the life that he lived. And Lord, not that we want to worship Paul, but we recognize that all of that is your work in him, just as he recognized it. It wasn't, it wasn't him. He didn't become a new man to live on his own by his own power, but he, the life he lived, he lived for you and in you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, led by you. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us and help us to live lives worthy of that gospel of your sacrifice for us, that we would give our lives willingly as we stand firm with one another in the Holy Spirit. Give us more of the Spirit to teach us how it is that we can stand, to give us power to do so, to help us to to, to seek the unity of, the, uh, of that one spirit so that we could strive together side by side with one another for the furtherance of your kingdom with whatever time we have left. I pray you give us these things. Despite whatever opposition, Lord, make us to be bold and to not be frightened easily. Pray for all these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.